This is Ask a Biologist, a program about our living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. I'd like to start our show a little different today. We're going to have a kind of uh, game. We're going to have our listeners try to guess what animal our guest scientist has spent most of his life studying and writing about. So let's begin with a few hints. All of these animals live in communities. You know, your school is a community, your towns, cities, these are communities. Also, some of these animals are known to grow gardens and are excellent harvesters. Some of these animals are weavers of silk, while others are referred to as carpenters. I actually have an uncle that's a carpenter. There are some that are feared because of their armies that can be as large as 700,000, while others store sweet nectar similar to honey. There are even groups of these animals that maintain slaves to this day. Have you guessed it yet? How about maybe just a couple more hints? Some of the animals are able to lift things more than 10 times their own weight. For you and I, we could actually lift, if we could do the same thing, 2,000 pounds, which would be a ton, literally, and carry it for miles. Oh, one last hint. Many of these animals can literally walk on water. So have I stumped you? Have you guessed the animal yet? If you came up with visions of ants, you're correct. And today our guest scientist is Bert Herdobler, a professor in the School of Life Sciences and a member of the Center for Social Dynamics and Complexity. Herdobler has been studying and writing about ants for more than 50 years. He's authored and co-authored several books, including one simply titled The Ants, that he co-authored with Edward O. Wilson and which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1991. Welcome to our show, Professor Herdobler. Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, for some of our young listeners, I want to mention about the Pulitzer Prize. It's one of, if not the most prized literary achievements in American literature. It is quite a great honor, and what some people might consider about an unlikely subject, ants. Can you tell us a bit about writing the book and the collaboration process? Well, uh, Ed Wilson and I we were both professors at Harvard University, and we shared several laboratories. Uh, we had separate research groups, but uh, we often met, had lunch. And uh, from our conversations, of course, we developed uh, a mutual liking. We knew we are both interested in ants. So one day uh, we said, I think it was about uh, 1986, when we said, wouldn't it be great if we could write down everything the world knows about these little creatures, the ants. In fact, they are little, but you know, many people don't know, if you weigh all the ants on this earth, you know, if you just can, you, you can calculate this, how much the ants weigh, and you compare it to the weight of all the humans, the ants are almost of the same weight, of the same mass as all humans. Really? So they are little, but they are quite heavy altogether. And there are many, many different species of ants. We estimate about 20,000 species. This is a lot. So at Wilson and I, we have uh, different talents which are very complementary, and we said, look, if anyone can do that, that's us. And though we sat down and started writing, we wrote for about almost four years with interruptions, and we never thought the book will, the final product will weigh uh, seven pounds, a very heavy book, a large book, 
But we made it, and I tell you, still sometimes when I look at the book and Ed Wilson does the same, we say, how did we ever do it? You also collaborated with E.O. Wilson on another book called Journey to the Ants. It's a good resource for young scientists and includes a chapter on building and keeping an ant colony that I recommend to anyone that wants to experiment with ants. What got the two of you to write this book? Well, this book to write was really fun, because after having written, written The Ants, which is a book for scholars, and this is why we were so surprised as we got the Pulitzer Prize. In fact, this is the only scientific work which ever was awarded the Pulitzer Prize up to, to now, because it's a book written for scientists. Uh, this book, Journey to the Ants, we wrote for the interested layperson and for children. They may not understand everything, but we tell the story of discovery, how we as little boys were interested very early in ants and in bugs, and how Ed Wilson and I never left the bug, period. Uh, we are still like kids when we look at the ants and observe them. And we wanted to tell the people how fascinating this world in the underground is. This was fun to write. So we, we could write it out of our head. We didn't need much literature. Uh, and I actually am very happy about this book and apparently other people too because it was translated, I think now, in 13 or 14 languages. Wow, so, 13 or 14 languages. Right. Amazing. Well, I always like to talk a little bit about growing up with our scientists because everybody has a little different path. And I recently learned that your father was what we call a classic naturalist of his day. He was trained as a physician and also very interested in the natural world around him. So my question is, was he your entry into the world of biology and the study of ants, or was there some other spark? I think my father was clearly my first biology teacher in many ways. Um, he tried, you know, my father earned his money, as you say, as a physician, as a surgeon, but his love was nature, and particularly insects. But he was really an all-around naturalist, remarkable, broad in his knowledge. I have uh, four siblings, and he wanted to ignite this love for nature in all of us. He succeeded in two of us, uh, and maybe in three. Uh, my my younger brother loves nature, but he didn't turn on to biology. So it's not necessarily always that you have a parent who is very excited about that. It, it has to be mutual. So my interest very early, as far as I can think back, was biology and especially animals. And my father had clearly a great uh, influence. And I remember a key experience I had. I must have been about seven or eight years old. My father was drafted as a young surgeon in the Second World War and served up in uh, the East Front in uh, Finland, Karelia. And he was home for a furlough, and uh, we made a... A summer, or was it early, a spring walk through the Bavarian woods, and it was his habit to turn around rocks, uh, you know, to look what is underneath, and uh, at one, I, I literally still remember the, the spot even, he turned around a rock, and there was underneath a, a wonderful colony, a whole society of the shiny uh, chestnut brown carpenter ants, the largest ant in Europe. 
it was just amazing, these ants uh, running around, grabbing their larvae, their pupae, the eggs, and disappearing on the ground. A whole society has revealed itself to me, and from that moment on, I was hooked on ants. Now, my father studied ants, and in fact, this big book, there are several citations of his work, so he, he published uh, some remarkable papers in the 20s and uh, 30s, uh, but I, uh, I kept all sorts of animals, you know, fish, a fox. I tried to cross a fox with a duck's hunt, which, of <laughs> course, was a failure. But they grew up together, this fox and the duck's hunt, and, and the fox was a great pet. We had birds. Whenever there was a bird with a broken wing, people brought it to my father. He was not only a surgeon, he could also fix broken wings of birds. Then the birds were nursed up in our house. So, you know, I grew up with animals. And um, uh, even in the horrible time of the war, nature was my place where the world was sane and peaceful. Your escape, so to speak. I, my escape. Right. The little woods, my brook, where I caught tadpoles and watched them, released them again into the brook. And when I saw all the sad faces of my you know, adults, relatives, and around us. My my happiness was in the woods, out in the woods. So you see, I very early the the biology genes right. the must have been in me. You know, the so I was yeah. very early imprinted. But the, indeed, you said it right. My father and a very very tolerant mother. I must say, without my mother's patience. <laughs> bringing in all these animals, and uh, I, it would not be possible. And I'm so grateful to my parents. No, I, that's, no, I, mm. I think that's wonderful. And it's also rather interesting about the talk about the escapism. I think a lot of the, the students today, they might escape in a video game, and it, it would be fun just to get them to go out and try the escape in, in nature. Um, and even even in the big cities, nature exists. So that's, Absolutely. We can, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. While we're talking about the spark and getting students interested, I wondered if you could recommend or suggest a simple experiment with ants that could be done in the classroom or at home. Yeah. In fact, you know, uh, the the most important part is to pick the right uh, ant species, which you can easily keep at home in an artificial nest, because not all uh, all ant species are suitable for that. The carpenter ants are usually pretty good, uh, the harvester ants, which you have here in the southwest, uh, these are the ones you usually get in ant farms. You know, they can sting and they have a really bad sting. So I would not recommend that you use them. But but I suggest even an experiment if you are, which you don't have in, in the lab or in, in a classroom or at home, uh, if you are out and you see an ant trail, uh, which you often see, you know, tiny little ants actually walking along long trails, very precise. Just make a little experiment. Uh, wipe over the trail with your finger uh, uh, three to four times and watch what happens. The ants will stop exactly at the spot where you had your finger, will turn around, will search in loops, and it will take them quite a while before they can overcome this barrier, invisible barrier, which you have created, and then you wonder, what did you do? In fact, what you have done is you have interfered with the language of the ants. 
Right. The ants have a fantastic communication system. They speak, so to say, not in words or sounds, but they speak with chemical signals, with chemical worlds. Let me say ants are little chemical factories. Hmm. They are full with so-called glands where they produce all sorts of substances. And when they want to communicate, to tell a, a nestmate something, say there is danger, they release a particular substance. Sometimes we can smell it with our nose, sometimes we don't. But the ants can smell it. Their noses are on the antennae. They can smell this, and actually when they receive this particular substance, which say alarm, they will immediately react. Some rush by to help the nestmate. Others will also give this signal, so to alarm other nestmates. So, for example, when they have uh, discovered a new food source in your kitchen, for example, a great pie, uh, some ants, some scouts discover it, run home and lay now a chemical trail. They lay a trail with minute amounts of a substance. You don't smell, but the ants do. And then the others, the nestmates, rush out along this trail and find the pie. And those which have found it and love it will also lay a trail. So the trail gets heavier. Heavier. And so when you wipe over this uh, now column of ants, you have destroyed part of this chemical message. Their, their phone line, so and to speak. And this is actually a nice experiment. Then you can actually try, can I replace this? You know, mm-hmm. you may then take ants and, uh, you know, first you put them in a freezer or somewhere or you kill them softly mm-hmm. and then you crush certain parts mm-hmm. of the ants and uh, with, with a little wooden stick you draw the crushed body parts over the trail you have interrupted and you will find out where the trail substance comes from, from the lower part, from the middle part, from the head and find out... Where's the trail? Pheromone. We call it pheromone. This trail signal right. comes from. I think that, well, actually, that would be an excellent uh, way to get started and, and something I wasn't aware of. Uh, it would be a, a fun experiment. It also explains maybe, uh, well, at least explains partly when you go out for your picnic and the ants always seem to show up. Right. Um, not only do they communicate that way, they must do it very rapidly because you're not there very long and all Absolutely. of a sudden the ants are, are able to find it. One of the other things I like to do is is break down stereotypes. A lot of people have uh, visions of scientists. Uh, they describe them as men, and now sometimes we'll put in women. And they should be men and women and young students. But they're always wearing white coats, and they're working with test tubes and beakers. So what I like to do is I like to describe a couple things, especially a couple pictures that I've seen of you. The first one is of you laying flat out on the ground, and we're talking out in the dirt and the, and the grass, and you have this cinematography camera and you're filming ants. What I'd like to know is, can you tell me or our listeners a little bit more about what you're doing? And are cameras an important tool for your research? Well, yes, they are. And, um, you know, I'm a, a behaviorist. I study animal behavior. And behavior is, of course, motion. And you can make photographs, of course, but you never catch the motion. So in order to analyze in detail the motion of these tiny little ants, 
the best tool is first to film them, and then in, in, when you analyze it, when you really study it, you slow the whole thing down, and you, you look from frame to frame uh, in, a, in, in the movie sequence. But also the, the movie work, and especially if you do close-ups, they tell you a great deal what the naked eye cannot see, even with a magnifying glass. The, 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 the eye of the camera, which enlarges the whole uh, scene, uh, is so accurate. So when we then look at the movie screen, or now, of course, we do it on a, on a computer screen, we can see details which the eye would not see at the, without the tool. So indeed, uh, the picture you saw is probably the one where I, uh, on, on the ground in one of the southwestern deserts, watching some territorial behavior. And what I do is I am in the middle of these ants. I lie down, and they consider me almost motionless. Lots of patience is needed. They consider me as part of the landscape. And I just move slightly and record in in close-up. They they have fantastic behavior. So do you get stung while you're doing this? Oh, I very often do. And, uh, you know, these field biologists, they take all sorts of uh, countless insects stung me and bit me. <laughs> but uh, you you literally forget this when you are in the middle. But um, my work is about 30% in the field and 70% in the laboratory. Uh, we get our ideas and the questions we want to ask to understand life around us in the field. So I'm a, a guy who wants to understand the natural behavior outside, not a laboratory animal like a mouse or a fruit fly. Mm-hmm. I want to understand how they interact in nature. But then really to understand what I just said, for example, the chemical communication, the, 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 the chemical words, I have to bring the whole system into the lab, and I am partly also a chemist. In fact, I am. I, my second major is chemistry. And so, you know, I want to, to know what substances do they use. So this is the, the laboratory part. Or when I want to understand how the brain works. This, these ants, these tiny little ants have complicated brains, you know, with a million brain cells. Just imagine this little... Head, but when you really look with a microscope at it, they, are, they have fantastic brains. So, this is all done in the laboratory. But I would never want to miss the field work. Right, right. I think I, I hear that from a lot of what we would call field biologists. But I also am noticing this fusion where right. you want to mm. learn, and I think actually that seems like the spark and all the fun is out in that field. And then the details and the things that, that you're learning out in the field come to the forefront if you can bring them into the lab. The other image that I noticed that I just was fascinated with when I first saw it, it stuck in my mind, you were basically, it looks like you're on an archaeological dig and it's for some ancient ruins of a lost civilization. You're standing deep inside a hole. You could be 10 feet underground, it looks like, and it's maybe 90 feet around. Just what are you doing? Well, uh, of course, I the ants have all the most ant species, not all, but most have their uh, their dwellings on the ground, 
And when we want to get colonies, whole colonies, into the laboratory, and we, uh, or at least major parts of the of the end society into the laboratory, we do have to get the queen. Without the queen, the colony will not exist. You know, this is the only individual which reproduces, which makes new ants. So, uh, in order to get this, we have to dig down. And this is one reason why sometimes we dig down deep until we find the queen. Once we have the queen, we don't need all the workers, uh, but then we have a, a, a healthy colony which can which we can bring into the laboratory and then give them the best settings we can provide, and they will flourish. Uh, but another th- thing, and this is not my main research, uh, actually, there is a wonderful uh, professor at uh, Tallahassee who studies the nest architecture of ants. This is Walter Chingle. But we did it for, a, for an ant colony which builds gigantic nests. The nests take an area of about 50 square meters and go down eight meters deep. So you have to translate this into foot and inches. But in order to understand the architecture, my colleagues did the following, and I was involved in that. They poured in cement, you know, liquid emulsion of cement, and they used 10,000 liters of water and six tons of cement to pour down. Six tons? Six tons. Wow. You know, mixed with 10,000 liters of water, and then they waited for three weeks until the whole thing petrified, literally solidified, and then the digging began, and it took weeks, and professional diggers, you know, mechanic diggers were needed, but then the rest had all to be done by hand because... And the whole fantastic uh, structure, unbelievable structure, came out. Beautiful looking. With, piece of art. With piece of art. With yeah. long channels, with highways under, you know, subterranean highways coming in, with um, living chambers, with debris chambers, just incredible. All now in concrete, a huge edifice. I wanted to talk about the movie, yes. the documentary. And I think this is it was actually in that. This is correct. So the movie actually called Ants, Nature's Secret Power, uh, that was kind of interesting because it won the special jury prize in 2005 at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, which for those that don't know about it, it's kind of the Academy Awards of documentary films. This is another nice thing about scientists. You don't necessarily always have the same path, and you're not necessarily doing something that could be, some students might think, dry or boring. Here you are. You're making a film. Did you ever imagine you would be part of a documentary about your favorite animal? Well, uh, I have to say my research was featured in several documentaries in German television and British and also some American, which, you know, NOVA programs and so on. But this movie was entirely focused on my research, and I had to, I, I was the architect, so to say, of the scientific contents. What was for me so intriguing, I, I have to say, uh, I have a great ambition for public communication. Some of my books I've written were for the public, you know, and also I like right. to, to do that. But I've never done it in the form of a movie with my own total impact. And so I was interested to, to show 
to make a movie with a fantastic cameraman, Wolfgang Thaler, outstanding uh, artist. And I wanted to show how we scientists, just as I said, you know, go out into the field and get the ideas, the problems by watching the animals close up. But then we bring it in into the laboratory and we use really high-tech approaches to listening in, to decode the secret communication system. We have the whole society. It's like a Martian coming from outside and looking at it at a society which which appears alien to us and now taking our techniques you know physics and chemistry and figuring out how these little creatures can do all these things cooperate do unbelievable things and I wanted to show this to the layperson and to children uh, in a movie that the movie became such a success is absolute joy to me because uh, we accomplished what we wanted to do but the credit is all to this fantastic cameraman yeah it it does make a big difference it makes a big difference you know earlier in the in the program i was talking about how much uh, ants can actually lift and i was very very careful or actually i underestimated quite a bit because we've talked about this and i said they could lift 10 times their weight and actually in the movie you have a nice scene in there where the ants lift up to was it 100 times no what what we have is this is remarkable just imagine uh, an ant stands upside down uh, or hangs attached with their, their claw on a glass on a smooth glass upside down and we we managed to give these ants in their chores a piece of metal which weighs 100 times as much as the ant does. The ant grabs this metal and holds it, hanging upside down on a smooth glass. A hundred times. hundred times of its weight. Fantastic. And, and this, is, this is what we think about, the simple ant, but it's not simple in any way. It's actually fascinating. When did you know that you wanted to be a scientist or a biologist? Well, you know, uh, every child has dreams what they want to do as uh, as a profession. And uh, many people say, I want to be a railway engine driver or a pilot. I I had from early on three, three likings. I still have them. Either to become a naturalist, a scientist naturalist. This was, as I said, very early in me. Or to become an artist painter. I love to paint as a little kid and I still do. Uh, art is my hobby. Or to become a farmer. These were my... And I still am interested very much in farm. I go sometimes into farms and I like to see a well-run farm. I'm more familiar with the German farms. Uh, but I needed a farm. And so I had no farm in my family, so I couldn't become a farmer didn't want to be a, a, a theoretical agriculturalist. Uh, with the art, I discovered, fortunately, that uh, my own practical talent is not as great that I can make a living on that, but I do love to do art, still watercolors, but I love to go to museums and galleries. And so I chose, uh, luckily, uh, as a profession, biology, and I combined it, biology and chemistry, uh, which uh, uh, 
I'm very happy with my, with my profession, and I'm very happy with my hobby. For young scientists out there, do you have any advice? Simple? What I always say to every one of the young uh, graduate students or young students who come to me, uh, children, I say, do what you really love to do and do it as well as you can. When I studied uh, to study biology, many people said, oh, the market is full, there are not, it's not a good chance for biologists, and uh, you, know, you should choose something else. And I think it was a little bit the reason why I also picked chemistry. But I'm very happy that I did this. You know, it was an ideal combination. When I finished, there was a need for biologists. So uh, never look at the market, really. Do what you do and do it as well and with great enthusiasm and uh, just become a workaholic. Because when you, when you love what you do, you become a workaholic and you know, never stop doing it. Let's not work anymore. Yes, there's no work anymore. Right, right. This, is, this is, uh, I tell you, I, I just wanted to say, I cannot make true vacations. I cannot sit down or lie on a beach. I have to walk on a beach and collect either stones or shells, and then I take a book and identify the shells. This is for me vacation. Going out collecting ants and watching ants is for me, I get tired when I do the, the, the usual vacations lying in the sun, but I never get tired being out and collecting, watching, making notes. Excellent. Thank you for visiting with us today. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Professor Bert Herdobler from the ASU School of Life Sciences. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University, and even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.